0: sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash B-O-F, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash B-O-F to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash B-O-F.
3: Hi, this is Imran Ahmed, founder and CEO of the Business of Fashion. Welcome to the B-O-F podcast. It's Friday, March 10th. Well, it's that time of the season where our editor-at-large, Tim Blanks, and I sit down to reflect on the fashion season that was. And what a season it's been, from Daniel Lee's debut at Burberry at London Fashion Week to the transitional show at Gucci, while they wait for their new creative director, Sabato De Sarno, to take his role in the lead-up to his debut show in September. In Paris, there was the highly anticipated Balenciaga show, the first brand statement since Balenciaga faced a huge PR crisis in the wake of the advertising scandal late last year. Tim and I discuss all of that and more on this week's edition of the BOF podcast.
4: Tim, I have a headache.
3: It's been a pretty full-on season, but we're here to have our seasonal and
4: uplifting conversation. Yes, about our the seasonal.
3: seasonal review of the fashion month gone by. And as you and I've been discussing, the word of the season has been restart, not just from the designers, but just in so many ways. It's the first season that we had the Chinese fashion community back post their zero COVID extended lockdown. It's the first season that really feels like a post-pandemic reset because, of course, what we thought would be the restart last year at this time was then interrupted by Putin's invasion in Ukraine. And there were a lot of brands as well that were kind of just starting a new trajectory with a designer or in the middle of a transition or ready for a restart. So what are your overall reflections on this moment that can be
4: encapsulated by the word restart. I felt, uh, like you said, that this was a moment where a lot of people seemed to be reassessing. And I think possibly that sense was honed, not just by the pandemic, but also by the war. And what is fashion was a question that people were asking themselves and obviously being asked by people like me, what is fashion now? What does my brand Stand for. Chitoshi Abe at Sakai was talking about Kachakan, you know, the Japanese concept which covers your values and your priorities. It's this idea of purpose, like why? Yeah, why? Why, why, why? why. why. And how Kachakan needs to evolve. Mm-hmm. Your sense of purpose, your priorities, they need to evolve. And, you know, in a funny way, you take Kachakan as we say restart, but in another way, Kachakan, if you want to be really, really pretentious about it could be another word of the season because it wasn't just brands, it was individual designers who were processing what they're doing and what they need to do because obviously the future looms very dark and very uncertain.
3: Yeah, uncertain. Uncertainty is the overall feeling, not just in fashion, but in the world generally because we just economically, we don't know what's going to happen. The world is teetering on this looming recession Inflation has started to fall, but it might not fall enough. And the Chinese reopening could accelerate the economy. So, in a lot of the conversations I was having with CEOs and business leaders in the industry, they were still feeling quite hopeful and buoyant because, well, maybe buoyant's not the right word, but they were feeling cautiously hopeful that with the economy slowing in the US and Europe, but things picking up in China and with markets like the Middle East and India still roaring, that they didn't quite know what to make of it. So this uncertainty is looming over everything, really.
4: Well, there is the umbrella that all of those conversations take place under, which of course is the umbrella of the complete collapse of the global climate. Yeah, And I mean, on a daily basis, the things that we're dealing with, you feel that, that human response to catastrophe is, if you hit people with disaster often enough, they learn to adapt around it. And if you step back and read the paper every day, there is a story I read the other day about the Mediterranean being uninhabitable in something like eight years, that Mediterranean region, because of heat yeah, and no water. It's really like a, a hiccup. Eight years is here tomorrow. And meanwhile, we go to fashion shows.
3: And like, if there's one thing that we've learned over the last few years is that anything can happen. And so in general, you know, the people I was speaking to, everyone was kind of preparing for the unknown, the uncertain. And probably one of the brands that has the most uncertainty wrapped around it right now is Gucci. You know, it was an interesting moment at Gucci because of the return of all of these Tom Ford models and the moment there, and in a way a restart for those models as well. And then there's, of course, all the drama around the influencer pits. But how do you think Gucci handled this transitional moment?
4: Just starting with the models for a moment, using Amy West and Guinevere Vanceenas, and Lisa Winkler on the catwalk. That was such a moment. Also, they were wearing, well, at least two of them, Lisa and Amy, were wearing the kind of classic look that we're told Gucci is looking for in the wake of Alessandro Michele's glorious reign. And all through the season, there were models from that generation of models sprinkled through the shows. That was obviously like the challenge for fashion houses. Who can we get that nobody else has found living in the wilds of British Columbia or something? But what struck me about Gucci was that we'd heard so much about how McKellie had not really wanted to toe the line on a more classic approach to Gucci. So I don't know what I expected, but what we saw was not what I was expecting to see, because it still felt as eccentric and as at points provocative as anything that he did. And as a transitional collection, it did feel to me a little bit like the design team had been charged with, maybe what's the one look that you've never done that you wanted to do? Because the collection was kind of a mess. It was like all over the place. It was, this is your moment to do this before the new creative director starts with his first collection in September. And because of that, I rather liked it. You know, it was chaotic, but it was an enjoyable chaos. And I did love it when everybody came on at the end, all of them, dozens of them, the team was all there surrounding us. It's always lovely to see that. But here, of course, it was poignant because speaking of uncertainty, nobody really knows what's going to happen there. I also rather enjoyed the fact that There were people who wrote about the show that felt that because it was a transitional collection, it could be safely slammed. And I thought that was rather a predictable response to what we saw. Because it wouldn't be so personal. Yeah, because it was, you know, when the team does a collection, you've seen it in the past with Dior and any number of houses that were in between designers. When the team does a show, it's automatically assumed it won't be as good. I mean yeah, maybe the individual focus was missing in Gucci, but that sort of breadth that the show had did feel a little bit Alessandro-like to me, you know? Yeah, it felt
3: like a little bit of everything. I think one of the reasons we didn't see a series of classic conservative looks, which we actually saw in some other shows, which were much more like this return to elegance theme that was present on a lot of runways this season. It's because actually, if you know, the executives at Caring and Gucci feel very strongly that fashion is a key part of the DNA of that brand. And so a transitional collection for them perhaps meant fashion from the history of Gucci going back to Tom Ford and including Alessandro Michele. And so I think what we can expect in September is not a more classic Gucci. It's going to be another take at a Gucci trying to be a fashion leader in the same way that Tom Ford was when he was creative director, in the same way that Alessandro was when he really shifted the industry in that very rare way that only happens every so often. And so I think what they're hoping is that Sabato de Sarno can be the next person to take the Gucci house and make it a fashion leader. And so that's why I don't think we're going to see a bunch of classic looks. I think what happens at Gucci going forward is a maybe a bit more like what's at Vuitton, where you have a quite stable, classic collection of handbags and and products that kind of are maybe slightly adapted every season, but are very predictable. And, and then on top of that, you layer this kind of fashion element. And I think if you think about what Alessandro and Marco Bizzari did over the last eight or nine years taking Gucci from a 3 billion euro brand to a 10 billion euro brand. The scale of the business for one creative director was a lot. And if you think about Dior, where they have you know, Maria Grazia and Kim Jones and Victoire de Castellan, or if you think about Vuitton, where they have Nicolas Jesquier and now Pharrell, I think there's an organization reset happening at Gucci as well. So maybe Sabato will be left to focus more on like driving the fashion agenda at Gucci and there'll be more other teams of people that work on these classic products. Does that make
4: sense? Yeah, it makes perfect sense. I mean, definitely the scale of the production didn't suggest a transitional moment. It didn't suggest any kind of diminishing of investment or anything. It felt extremely confident.
3: Mm. We used to do these conversations, Tim, in chronological order, but this time we're kind of jumping around. I wanted to talk about Burberry because that was one of the other, I'd say, most anticipated moments of the season. You know, London Fashion Week has been bereft of its Burberry moment that helps to draw in all of the big buyers and editors. They were all back in town in full force, even if it was only for that one Monday of London Fashion Week to catch Daniel Lee's debut at Burberry. I know what I thought about it, but you know, now that you have a bit of distance and perspective,
4: what are your reflections on that debut? There was a strong emphasis on Britishness in all the show notes and all the toing and froing around the show. And I was rather looking forward to seeing what Daniel Lee would do with Britishness. We had that initial campaign with all those different people, all those different faces of quite a diverse range of people who live in the UK. Everybody from Vanessa Redgrave on to young rappers. And then the music for the show was Burial, which is literally the sound of modern Britain to me. That slightly decayed, broken down system of... People, seems to me, dealing with despair and getting absolutely no guidance from any of the people who we had once looked for guidance from. So I thought, oh, that's perfect for Daniel Lee because he does have, at Bottega, he did have a very iconoclastic approach to that brand's heritage. And I was thinking that there might be more iconoclasm in this. I thought it it might be a restart in the sense that it would acknowledge modern Britishness whatever that is, being constantly redefined in the ongoing battle between the Daily Mail and the Guardian every day, I guess. But he really did do Burberry tradition and and maybe, you know, with a British tradition as in people like Westwood. Not punk Westwood, but regal, tartany, crowny Westwood. So I was a bit surprised by that. And because I was surprised, I guess I probably... I like being surprised. I probably enjoyed it more than maybe if I had seen UK dystopia now, you know, on the catwalk. But there were things I really enjoyed in the show. Uh, I thought there was obviously what he has to do is really generate an accessories business for the brand. That's what we have read is his major mission. I wasn't getting that completely, but I did see some pretty interesting shoes. And the bags he talked about, you could just throw them on the ground and treat them really badly and they would just get better and better, which is a, a nice kind of solid British notion. What did I think? As a restart or as a start, yeah, there'll be something to see next time. I think, you know, when it comes to
3: his business mission, as it were, around accessories, I actually found it really hard to see the bags because the styling was such that they were like tucked under people's arms and the shapes I saw didn't look New, But the shoes were really cool. There were no sneakers. It was you know a very different vibe from Ricardo's Burberry. And I also just really appreciate Daniel's personal connection to Burberry. They did this drinks thing with him a few months ago when he first started. And I spent a few minutes chatting with him and turns out he grew up about 20 minutes from the trench coat factory, which Burberry has in Yorkshire. Not so different from like Christopher Bailey's relationship with Burberry. He's had family members who worked in that factory. And so unlike Bottega, where, of course, he was hugely successful and created all those bags, I think what's different here is he seems to have a real personal connection and affinity for this brand. And when he was talking about it backstage, he sounded really confident and secure
4: about what he has to do.
3: So yeah, let's see what happens. And it was
4: interesting that Christopher Bailey was there and they seemed really close Yeah, backstage. He was also at the drinks that they hosted. Yeah, and so
3: they've clearly created some kind of dialogue, which is really interesting. Cause with some time between Christopher Bailey's exit and where we are now, like I look back at those Christopher Bailey shows and think about the way he captured whatever Britishness was at that time. And it was really successful. It was really clear, you know, it was long, I think they were ready for a change when he left, but he really nailed it. And so I guess Daniel's trying to do his own version of that for this moment. Yeah. Okay, so you and I both really loved Bottega Veneta. Why did you love it?
4: Interesting. Um, we talked about breadth there with Cucci. I realized something this season. I mean, I, I always know this, but I was reminded this season that I'm a sucker for a story. You know, I thought Maria Grazia Curi at Dior told a really good story this season. And The collection was super long, but it really made it cohere in a really convincing way. The same at Bottega, the whole notion of a carnival or a festival or a parade, and he had all these different types of people, the people getting out of bed in the morning and the businessmen and the the village folk and their various dressed-up garb or whatever. And then the end of the day, that whole dawn-to-dusk arc, which was fascinating to see when you knew that and, and you could explore that kind of line through the collection. It was fascinating to see that. But on top of all of that, he is just an amazing, all the Bottega Veneta ateliers are amazing craftspeople. And he sets them the most extraordinary challenges. So it's, the clothing is not no bells, bugles and whistles. It's subtle, a lot of it, but it's never what it seems to be. And... That is fascinating to me. He also had a banging soundtrack of different
3: street music from carnival music. Samba. I don't know. It's one of those shows which when I talk to people afterwards who only saw the images, they're like, really? Yes, exactly. But when you're there in that room, it was so impactful. And it's where the production mattered, but it didn't drown out the show. Like, you know, they had brought those statues in from different museums in Italy and like it raised questions in your mind, which is like why are they there? Which he was able to answer afterwards. But the whole thing was just so cohesive. You could tell that there was a clear creative vision and narrative as you're talking about the story. It
4: was it was a very intelligent collection too. It made you wanna buy and wear the clothing. It operated on that fundamental principle of desire that fashion has to have to make it valid or relevant or whatever. So these were also very intelligent clothes. And when he talked about them, there was a not just a story, but his excitement at being there and having this opportunity was very palpable. I, I remember
3: when we were backstage listening to him, that you know normal scrum of journalists was surrounding him, and I could see him take in a deep intake get his mindset before he started telling the story. And it was clearly something he just really, really thought about. And I just found it so compelling. I wish sometimes we could share more of those moments backstage. Because when you hear in the designer's own words what their thought process was, what their creative process was, it's really
4: magical. And that show was magical. It was great. The point about the soundtrack is very interesting. I was really looking forward to the ballet show because... Yuji Villasenor, I think, is a really interesting story. Really, and I think he's very, very talented. But his show had this, I think, original soundtrack that had been composed for it by an Oscar-winning composer or a, somebody who'd won an Oscar for what they did. And it really interfered with the show. I thought it was so ponderous and self-important. I thought, wow! I'd never actually awa- I never actually—I'm always aware of when music elevates a show. But I'm not often struck by how when a music brings a show down.
3: Well, it was that and the staging of the show at Bali. I think what you and I were whispering to each other before, after, during, I can't remember, was that it felt more like the end of the night of a great party than the energy of the beginning of the night. And I think with those kinds of clothes, and you were saying that there's a streak of Tom Ford in them, you're kind of expecting this.
4: Disco. Yeah, you just wanted some energy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know, when it closes a celebratory, you want celebratory sounds to accompany them.
3: Going back to this idea of craft, which made the Bottega Veneta show so successful, especially when we heard the backstory to it. The other designer that's really built something really special around craft is Jonathan Anderson at Loewe. And I think this year marks his 10 years at Loewe, which is kind of astounding. Very few designers can get the whole fashion industry to drive 30 minutes outside of Paris and not have them all pissed off at the end. That was a really worthwhile investment of our time on, a, I think it was Friday morning.
4: Well, I mean, we drove to the Chateau de Vincent, Chateau de Vincennes. Vincennes, yeah. Pardon my French. Where Mata Hari was shot by a firing squad, where the Marquis de Sade was imprisoned. History is important for Jonathan and uh, through his whole career. His sense of the past is really shaped his ability to predict the future. And I know that sounds very glib, but it's actually much more difficult than it sounds. And so his is never, unless you think that maybe he restarts every season, it's not really a restart, but it's always a question. And there's always a sort of, speaking of reassessments, a reassessment of exactly what clothes can do exploring possibilities and a lot of the time they're impossibilities which he somehow makes real so he definitely is the most interesting designer around at the moment i think
3: the restart i see with jonathan is that i think he's ready for a new challenge what he's built at Loewe is so remarkable but i think that there must be rather Other brands looking at what he's done at Loave thinking, wow, like imagine if we gave him the keys
4: to something a bit bigger. I think he's an incredible conceptualist. That's often a tricky game to play in fashion because you're making clothes and concept and clothing don't always sit together well. But I I think to walk into that white box in the middle of the Chateau Courtyard, which was in itself a fairly bold statement where we drove a long way to sit in another white box. Yeah, like, why couldn't that white box be in, like, the, you know, yeah, jardin de Tuileries, the road, you Down know? the road from the hotel, yeah. exactly. But then having those huge big blocks of confetti there by the Italian artist, and that as a metaphor was just, I mean, metaphor alerts are usually pretty nauseating in fashion, but that was fabulous. What did you see in the metaphor? Well, just crumbling. Yeah, because it all, fell that apart. That beauty, that fragile beauty crumbling before our eyes or somebody knocking into one of the cubes on the way out.
3: They were guarding the cubes on the way in. And I didn't understand why until after the show, when people were like taking selfies with them and they started falling apart and you could touch them. And it was also like, at least for me, not just about the fragility of the beauty, but also the kind of the celebratory thing. You associate confetti with like celebration. And sometimes behind it, all that celebration is a much darker shittier situation well, that you're he, trying to mask. You yeah, know? he
4: he goes deep. When he talks about fashion, he can be very cut and dried and uh, very precise and quite reductive sometimes. But then some of the key things in his show, are those women walking with their arms wrapped around themselves, it's just such an emotional gesture. And there was a lot of that this season, women walking clutching closed or with their arms wrapped around them that it's protective it's a protective gesture but it's also a self contained gesture. This is me me alone, I'm strong, I can do this you know. How do you think that happens Tim? Because we saw that clutching in so many
3: shows and do you think it's just all the designers are on the same wavelength by accident or do you think it becomes a stylistic expression on the runway that kind of spreads as people see it in the stylists and you mean the hive mind of fashion. Yeah. Like how, how, cause you know, the same thing happened with the way I remember when Phoebe Philo was at Celine, like the way the, the models would clutch those bags. You'd then see everyone across the industry having this like way of clutching the bags,
4: you know? But then Raph with his last show at Jill Sander, the model with a clutch coat was probably the most looked at image of the season. I think Jonathan started that with the menswear when he had the guys walking with their arms kind of resting in the, the V of their top. So you think it's
3: the designers, like a designer kind of sets this thing and it just becomes
4: part of the visual. It registers as something attractive and, I use the word again, relevant. You know, it's the way people are feeling. We'll be right back with
3: more on the BOF Podcast.
2: Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices to a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash banking for business to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. Have you ever owned something that inspired you to up your game?
1: With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.
3: The other show where the models were clutching and holding themselves and holding their jackets was at Dries Van Noten, which was another incredibly beautiful show this season. And for those of you listening who didn't see how it was staged, we all showed up at this I think it was a theater or an auditorium of some sort.
4: Huge. Massive. And quite ugly.
3: <laughs> yeah, not a particularly attractive space, but there's a stage and there's this massive mirror in front of us and we could kind of see the entire audience reflected in the mirror. And then in between each of the rows of the seats, there was a runway that was built. So we were all kind of sitting in blocks of two rows separated by a runway, and then another block of two rows separated by a runway. And while the show was happening, you could observe the show close up because you were seeing models walk by you. But you could also take the perspective of the entire thing that was happening and seeing all the models reflected in
4: the mirror. I mean, it was... I kept thinking, it looks like they're climbing a ziggurat. They were going backwards and forwards. But Dries van Noden has made a career of these quite simple effects that just blow your mind and stay with you forever. I mean, having hundreds and hundreds of umbrellas hung over his catwalk, or, you know, I think he was the first person who ever did models walking down the table while people were eating, which has been done a few times since. Do you remember
3: Just- one season we went, I think it was to the Opera Garnier, and instead of doing the show, like where Stella used to do our shows in the building, we were all sitting on the stage. We entered from the backstage. It was, you know, he's... Little things like that can really, really make a using show. using the
4: space, which yeah. is what he did there. Yeah. And also having one musician on stage, Lander, the drummer, just doing the whole soundtrack. They just evolved into the sort of tempest of noise. It was so... You just sit back and you think, that is a multi-talented guy who can put all of that together. He could do anything. I mean, he did make movies during the pandemic, and they were wonderful, but... Well, going back to what we were saying
3: earlier, it's someone who's thinking about the experience of the showgoer or the attendee sitting in their seat and what they're going to see, what they're going to hear, what they're going to feel, what they're going to smell. Like all of those things are thought of in a way that's like really experiential, which by the way, does not translate at all to the still images just from the front that get seen on on the internet. So it's, it's just... It made me really think this season, like, what's the purpose of a fashion show? Are we trying to engage people in the room? Are we trying to, like, get hundreds of millions of people watching online? And Dries was clearly prioritizing
4: the experience of those of us in the room. And the other thing is that that collection in particular demanded to be seen close up because the contrast in the show between the starkness of the tailoring and then the the delicacy of all the hand-painted and embroidered, fabrics that were counterpointing the, the tailoring that story was happening in front of you and yeah it's a funny thing the the, the notion of it being reduced to photographs at two-dimensional images it's it's that debate has been raging since you know my days at style.com and this the fashion has two or three experiences the live one the photographed one and then the videoed one now i guess it's they're all very different experiences and that's why i'm always feeling so immensely grateful that I actually get to see the live ones. Yeah, it's
3: completely different when you're there. Mm. So this conversation would not be complete without discussing Glenn Martin's. His show at Diesel, I know, was one of your top ones of the season. And then just yesterday he showed Y Project. You think he's really the designer to
4: watch right now? Oh, definitely. Because he also has in his repertoire the... Couture show he did for Jean-Paul Gaultier. I think he's a genius. I think one of the things that's most exciting about him is that he works in the vernacular, you know, genes. There's a lot of genes in what he does, a lot of denim anyway. It's a mark of genius for what he manages to do with things that are really, really familiar and the alchemy of fashion transforming the familiar into something weird and wonderful and irresistible. He's a master alchemist. He just does that so brilliantly. And also at Diesel, there's this kind of social agenda, which is really interesting as well. What The mountain of 200,000 condoms that was in the middle of the catwalk as a sort of prelude to the initiative where Diesel is distributing 500,000 condoms through their stores for free in April as a kind of center point of a show which was designed to celebrate sexuality. And responsibility and big ideas that could seem kind of gratuitous, I guess, in a lot of fashion contexts. But he just knits everything together very, very well. And speaking of iconoclast, he does have this kind of iconoclastic view of things mm-hmm. and a take it or leave it point of view. Like a sort of, it's not a bravado, it just seems to be the way he is, which makes him fascinating to talk to. Because he's one designer. Like there are, you know, Jonathan's another one. You really can't wait to see what they're going to do next. Mm. Junior,
3: Noir, Comme des Garcons, the Japanese designers, Sakai, were all back showing in Paris. I guess they were there last season too. I know that's one of your
4: favorite groupings. Yeah. Speaking of can't wait to see what they do next, Junior's show was just brilliant. Yeah, I mean, for four very different reasons. Undercover, too. Undercover, five. Yeah, five of them. It's so different. I I mean, they hate being lumped under the label Japanese designers. You can see why. They're not the same, but they all take this, like, extremely
3: Japanese, thoughtful, considered approach to what they do. Idiosyncratic. The whole narrative behind the undercover show this season, I know you were quite taken with it as well. Remind
4: me who the musician was on the soundtrack. So Jun is a musical train spotter And he has an absolutely encyclopedic knowledge Of pop, rock, electronic, jazz Everything for God knows how many decades When he started work on the collection He was he wanted to do something with the music of the specials That two-tone thing from England And he was also listening to the music of Manuel Gertsching Who was a German electronic musician And he had some very obscure bands in the 70s and by some extraordinary coincidence, both those guys, Terry Hall, the lead singer of the specials, and Mamuel Gertsching died in the same week in December while he was working on the collection. Really strange thing, really strange synchronicity. So it kind of changed the way, I think it must have changed the way he worked on the collection. There was a sort of an elegy, I thought, in there. It was quite a bit darker maybe than it would have been. But I think if, if Jun Takahashi collects music, I think Junya Watanabe kind of collects genres of fashion and, and kind of alchemizes them. Like, apparently doesn't like motorbikes, but he loves motorbike jackets. So this season was a whole transmogrification of the motorbike jacket into these clothes that looked like he he said... He was inspired by the song on the soundtrack was Kashmir by Led Zeppelin. And his single cryptic note about the show that he was inspired by the lyrics and by the desert mood of the song, even though there is no desert in Kashmir. Robert Plant actually wrote the song about driving through the south of Morocco. But that the grandeur of that song and then the clothes, like these deconstructed and reconstructed biker jackets as a starting point and then everything that went with them, the atmosphere of that show was incredible. And I also felt that when you think about a restart, I mean every time he kind of restarts and reconceptualizes clothing, the ingenuity of that. That's one thing that Japanese designers, that they share as a, a common trait is the incredible ingenuity with which they're capable of creating clothing. I mean, you have Raika Kawakubo making her enormous constructions and the designer at Noir, K Ninomiya, who seems like he's beaming in from another universe <laughs> with his clothes. And what I love about him is he, he resists interpretation as the others do, as his peers do. If you say, was that, was that? They say, no, no, it's not art. It's not science. It's not nature. These things do not intrude on his consciousness while he's making these clothes. So that leaves you free to feel that you've just seen a collection of clothes based on the phosphorescence of undersea creatures or... In a way, you develop the narrative or story yourself based on what makes sense to you. But which is equally entrancing because you know he'll say no, but he'll, no, no, that's not what I was thinking. No, 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 no. Because Rei Kawakubo usually
3: gives one word... I think she was a bit more generous this season. Well, no, season. She, she
4: was more cryptic than usual with her pre-show statement, but she did talk about the collection afterwards, which, in my experience, she's hardly ever done. She was a bit more forthcoming. But when she talked about going back to the source of things, and everybody assumed she meant the source of Conde des and then looked at that collection through that prism and just felt they were seeing not quite a greatest hits collection, but definitely something that was referring to the archive. No, she meant going back to the beginning of mankind, the human race. Mm-hmm. Another restart. <laughs> That's a restart. That's a, We'll have to assess how successful she has been with that with her next collection. And then Sakai, I thought the same thing. Chitose, the restart for her was less about the hybrid that has made her name and more about a sort of dissection of clothing so that they weren't so much hybridized as split and then put together. So where maybe... The hybrids in the past were about harmony. This was more about a very, very stark contrast. She talked about elegance and it was just, it was that. It was so elegant, but also so provocative in a way. Because you look at her clothes and you just love working out what they are. Okay. The biggest restart of the season we have to talk about
3: was at Balenciaga, which, without going into all the details, has been navigating, I'd probably say like the biggest PR crisis in the industry since Dolce & Gabbana and John Galliano at Dior, which are the only comparable situations. As an exercise of reset for Balenciaga, how do you think it was handled? How do you think Demna
4: is navigating through it? And where do you think things go from here? Well, he went back to the beginning at Balenciaga, the beginning of his time there, his first ready-to-wear collection. He told me that his commitment now is to redeem the name for Cristobal Balenciaga, who he reveres. Now, Cristobal Balenciaga was a man of such immense discretion as such a private person. You can't even imagine what this whole public... Furore would do to a person like that, especially because his name is on the above the door. I think Demmer does have a sense of that, and that's really what his it's really what he said he wants to do. I don't think the ready to wear was necessarily the right place to do that. I think we'd maybe we'll see more. We should see more when he offers his couture collection. Did he say to you he was going to do the couture? No, he didn't say anything about that. But I think that that would be where that would be more obvious because Cristobal's spirit is more present in that. I thought it was significant. There were no sweatshirts. There were no T-shirts with messages on them. There was no kind of commercial, there was nothing ironic and there were no sneakers.
3: Which is what that business is built on, but absent the theatrics of a mud pit or a windstorm or the Simpsons, like what do you think do the clothes... Hold their own in that white twiled space, and where do you think it goes in the future? because
4: how do you keep the energy in that going forward? He sees fashion as quite an explicit idea he used the protective things that horse riders and motorbike riders use the inflatables as a quite a significant element in the collection, so that some of the models they were inflated so they looked punched, and that real play with the silhouette that there were trousers with four legs and there were jackets that were like they were inverted trousers so the waistband of the trousers was the hem of a jacket or a coat or a, uh, he made a sack dress like which is a real balenciaga silhouette which he'd never ever done before he always stayed away from it because he thought it was a bit mumsy but it was inverted trousers with these waistbands around the bottom so there was a little bit of that fashion twist he's very committed to that Minus the theatrics, minus the spectacle, he's quite right that the spectacle had overpowered the clothing, that he said we'd work for six months and nobody talked about the clothes. They talked about the mud pit or the... Well, at the mud pit, you couldn't even see the clothes. <laughs> yeah, or well, they were covered with mud. Right. But the refugee crisis, uh, the Ukraine show, which was the climate crisis show he did, which ended up being interpreted as a show about Ukraine. Yeah, he's quite right that the scale of those things, they had completely overpowered the clothing. And the clothing was at that point really sneakers, sweatshirts. That's what people were talking about with Balenciaga. This was back to the purity of design. And we'll just have to see how that plays. There was the beautiful evening wear. There were elements of it. Um, he brought back those floral dresses that were a signature at the beginning of the... Except with really long sleeves. With really, really, really long sleeves. Yeah. Longer sleeves than he's ever done before. That's fashion. You know, fashion to him is a proposal. And I think he quite likes the idea that if it's a bit difficult initially, it will eventually become accessible because that is fashion. You make a proposal that provokes. The problem, of course, is that provocation is what got him into this bind because people have become very used to him as a designer who provokes with those shows, with their messages, with the. The leather garbage bag or the... DHL. DHL. And
3: then the IKEA bag, like all of those like really ironic...
4: The ironic provocations. So in a way, that's the cross that he's built for himself. I have friends who are very purist in their approach to fashion who absolutely loved it. So it's going to be interesting, very interesting to see. And he has an incredibly loyal audience. And what do you make of even
3: just putting up posts or writing articles, which is our job at BOF to assess and address what's happening. There's this whole notion that the fashion industry is trying to rehabilitate Demna and Balenciaga. What do you make of that? There's quite, I mean, a lot of outrage, a lot of really upset people who maintain that what happened last year has not been addressed.
4: However much they say it was just a terrible, terrible mistake and a series of nightmarish coincidences. However many times
3: they've now apologized in different media and different forums, however much they say, they know it was a mistake and they're ready to move on. There's always going to be this contingent of people who just will not accept that. Well, Balenciaga will now stand forever as a case study. As much a case study of how to respond yeah. to this kind of crisis yeah. as a as a case study of how to avoid it and I think the lesson for so many brands is actually it can happen so quickly you know because of the sheer volume of stuff that this industry is now churning out not just products but thousands of images that are being quite literally spewed out on TikTok and Instagram and Facebook and on websites and e-commerce sites and magazines and billboards. Like the industry is just an image creation machine just to keep up with this voracious need that everyone has. And any brand can find themselves in a situation where, you know, they make a mistake like this.
4: Well, it's also indicative of the times, isn't it? That, you know, surveillance has become this kind of boogeyman and society now that that we're being analyzed all the time for what we represent, you know. And we, we're leaving we, a digital footprint yeah. everywhere we go of what we So do. it makes perfect sense that huge fashion brands are being surveilled in the every little morsel of minutiae that they generate is now now people are looking. So Balenciaga is a case study in, in the sense that whatever they do now, there is a real, I mean, damned if they do, damned if they don't element in their story now. You look at the other houses that we've been talking about and you wonder how could a similar era of judgment or a similar obliviousness upend their businesses? And I think there's just something about the giantism in fashion now that encourages this kind of scenario or or will give birth to more of these scenarios? Well, there were so many things at play, right? There
3: was this idea of the ironic products we talked about earlier, which is taking like a $3 IKEA bag and turning it into a $1,000 plus handbag or potato chip bag or trash bag or whatever it might be. So there's a whole inequality dimension around how the luxury industry is still churning out and creating these like really, really expensive products that cater to a very, very elite group of people who even through the pandemic have managed to come out richer, right? So there's that element. Then there's the like wokeness of the industry, which positions it very much as an industry on the bleeding edge of like pushing societal norms and changing the way we think and behave as a society in terms of the rights of different minority groups and and marginalized groups, which really gets the ire of the right wing in the U.S. And so that's why, you know, like a Tucker Carlson gets involved. And then there is the element of Balenciaga's position in the culture and connected to the zeitgeist of the Kardashian complex and celebrities and video games. And it kind of, in a way, what made Balenciaga and its rise so successful made this crisis for them so severe. Because it, there were so many different constituencies and entities that could play a part in the conversation around it, which is what just accelerated it. And so maybe in that way, Balenciaga is quite unique as a brand because there's not many. Yes, there's not yeah. many fashion brands
4: or luxury brands that hold that position in culture. No, I agree. That's and that's why I talk about its giantism because and with a business that size, beware nuance. Because if if you live by irony, you're going to die by irony. Well, we'll have to
3: see where they take it from here. I think the real challenge will be if the focus is on the fashion and the focus is on the clothes, then it's really going to be incumbent on Demna to really drive that fashion conversation in the way that he did when he first came on the scene at Balenciaga. And so if this was a, a restart or a reset, then I think the really interesting question is like, well, where does he take it from here? Yeah.
4: And his mission, as he said, is the mission of redemption for Cristobal Balenciaga. He doesn't include himself in that mission.
3: Thank you, Tim, for our catch up. My headache is still here, but
4: I really enjoyed that conversation. If you have a headache, I'm feeling particularly inarticulate today. I feel like if the Balenciaga trousers had four legs, I feel I have two tongues at the very least. As
3: always, you're overly critical of yourself and you know we all appreciate you. I know our listeners all around the world look forward to this conversation every season. Thank you so much, Tim. And thanks everyone for listening. We will be back, of course, with more on the BOF podcast next week. The BOF podcast is edited and produced by Emma Clark, Kate Vartan, and Eric Bria in the BOF studio team.
2: Have you ever owned something that inspired you to up your game? For me, I got a chef grade range recently and now I'm cooking new things every single night. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer.
1: Hi,
0: this is Matt. And Sean. From Two Black Guys. Good credit. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation,
1: partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, And business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your
0: business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice.
1: Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee.